0: Hi, guys. So much stuff happened in the 1960s. It's hard to know where to start. I mean, I'm not even talking about just the great music and Woodstock Concert and the Love and Peace movement. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time or any time actually talking about China's cultural revolution and the 1968 Olympics in Mexico or the Vietnam War or the Cuban Missile Crisis or the fact that Che Guevara died in this decade, that India went to war with China, that the civil rights movement in the United States really took off, or uh, that the United States landed the first man on the moon. I mean, you know, this was a pretty amazing century on that front. But the mouse was also invented in the 1960s. You know that little device that lets you move your cursor across the screen? Most of us use a finger tracker now, but in 1964, before personal computers were even a thing, the mouse was invented by a man called Douglas Engelbart. And... um, well, the ballpoint tracking device, which essentially was sort of in the mouse, that preceded it mechanically and was, in fact, invented during wartime. But, you know, the 1960s are when, when you know, when the mouse also becomes a thing. You know, there's an entire book written about just the year 1968 because so much happened in that year, so much happened in that decade. Um, but largely, when we're thinking about both culture and politics and economics, so much in the 1960s really hinges on the overwhelming power play between the U.S. and the U.S.S.R. You know, the war in Vietnam is is really taking over most political decisions in the U.S. And both right-wing or left-wing authoritarian regimes are, are really literally getting away with murder in, you know, in Latin America, in Asia. So, you know, we could continue to discuss this and then I'd probably have to take like four hours of your time today. Um, and 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 so I'm not going to do that. I mean, these are things that I hope you're going to explore in your independent projects. Um, but what I really want to focus on is some of the underlying events that are going on, and not so much events, but, you know, sort of the um, the little things that end up changing the world. There's very often, it's what we could call the sort of the unsexy little things. And um, I'm going to start with, I don't know if you guys understand, know what the DRAM is, Dynamic Random Access Memory. So for hard technological infrastructure and specifically sort of components that make up the computer that you might have downloaded this podcast from, dynamic random access memory, that that chip is one of the most important tiny little things that made a huge impact and continue to make an impact today. The, The DRAM, which we'll just call it that, was invented in 1968 by a man called Robert Dennard. He's an American. He had a PhD from the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh. Um, but obviously this was you know, a collaborative effort. Um, but let's just sort of focus on what the chip did. It, it really increased the memory capacity of computers, which were, you know as you now know, becoming a major part of, of everyday life. And the chip made it possible to increase the capacity of computers at an increasingly cheaper price, which meant that much more powerful technological products could be created for a market that could be larger because it wasn't just limited to the army or, or even entertainment. So it, it provided a, a huge amount of memory for a really affordable p- budget. And DRAM is everywhere. I mean, some form of it sits in you know, in any part any of your devices. I mean, it's in gaming consoles, it's in telephones, it's in any computer, it's in your digital cameras, it's in your, it's in your Roku stick. Um, the memory chip also allowed for huge gains for companies because it essentially lowered the barriers to entry into sort of the processing power of computing, meaning that computers could now be used in almost any context. And, and that's a big deal because it the sort of the increased accessibility to comput- computing power allowed companies to become more powerful, efficient, and effective than ever before. The other part of the memory chip is that it's a pretty huge part of the argument in support of Moore's law. And I don't know, but Moore's law in its simplest definition is um, the observation that the processing power for computers will double every two years. And that law pretty much remains intact to this day. And um, And I mean, you know, technical, like what constitutes processing power has pretty much shifted. We're no longer thinking about sort of the internal circuitry we're talking about the cloud, but essentially, you know, it, it, the processing power is doubling exponentially. Now there's, this, there's a downside to this. It's not a downside, it's just a corollary, which is that as processing power becomes more powerful and we can adapt more computing power sort of throughout the economy, there's, a, there's an effect on labor, essentially, that, you know, sort of workers need to also keep up with that processing power and mechanization, can take over from some manual tasks. And so we see also a shift, and you know that's probably started already in the 50s, but you really see it in the 60s, and we'll see it in the 70s, of labor having, having to essentially educate itself beyond the specific skills of a particular task, which is something that we might have sort of expected in the 20s and 30s when most people worked in factories, to shift into programming. So this is sort of a huge part, part of modern labor is going to be more about the, the, the sort of the programming of the machines as opposed to the operating of the machines. Another, you know, unsexy little thing, but really major innovation of the 1960s was Telstar. Um, in 1962, or by 1962, some governments had, had already launched satellites, right, largely to sort of to carry out experiments in outer space. But in 1962, the first commercial satellite went into orbit, and and that really changed the face of communications. This was not about exploring. This was actually about putting something into space that would be useful to the planet. Telstar 1 um, had its origins in a transcontinental partnership between Bell Labs, NASA, AT&T, the British General Post Office, which handled Britain's telecom services, and France Telecom. And the satellite... Small Telstar One is less than three feet long and and weighed about one hundred and seventy pounds, and it used solar power when it was in service. And it's really hard to overstate how important Telstar One was to humanity. It was the first device the human race used to relay phone calls, fax images, and television pictures. I mean, the, it connected the globe, and that was that was a you know that was a pretty big deal because July first, nineteen sixty two, is the first time that it relayed non-public TV pictures, right, that it, across the globe you could see, you know, uh, it was, I think it was a, a, a baseball match. Um, but there was a catch. Since Telstar wasn't geosynchronous, it, was a, it wasn't in a geosynchronous orbit, so it, it wasn't fixed to the same point. Um, it was fixed to the same point above the spinning earth. Those transatlantic TV broadcasts only lasted 20 minutes during its orbit of two and a half hours. So, you know, once we lost, it once the planet moved beyond where the, the, the satellite was, it, um, you'd have to wait another two and a half hours. So it would be more than three years before a communication satellite could be geosyn- in geosynchronous orbit, essentially sort of move with, with the, the Earth and so, you know, and have an uninterrupted signal. Now, the irony, because politics is always going to come mess with this, is that because Telstar was a product of the space race between the US and the Soviet Union it would also be what ended it. So just a day before Telstar launched, the U.S. tested this high-altitude nuclear bomb, and um, it didn't affect Earth, but it affected part of the atmosphere that Telstar orbited in. So the radiation increase caused by the bomb with a bunch of other high-altitude tests, which the Soviets had done in outer space, damaged the satellite's really delicate transistors, and it knocked it offline in November. Now, they, they managed to kickstart it again in January, uh, but, you know, soon enough, there was another bomb test in outer space and, and a catastrophic transistor failure. But so Telstar survived seven months. And during those seven months, it handled more than 400 total transmissions and and essentially sort of showed us that we could do this. And it was the beginning of many satellites. And um, when you, when you look up to the sky at night, you know, Telstar 1 is still up there. It's floating around. It's a little piece of of history, of communications history, of technological history floating up there, orbiting in the sky. All right. Now, this is one of my favorite innovations of the 60s. We have to talk basic, just basics. And when I say basics, I mean the language, basic. So if, and the language, I mean the programming language. If you want to create a revolution, you need to get as many people to participate in that revolution, right? And in order to have all these people participating in a revolution, you need to make sure that they talk to each other. And in order for them to talk to each other, uh, they need to speak a common language. And that's where BASIC comes in. BASIC programming language is is a language that essentially united the world in a programming revolution. BASIC stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. And it was created by two Dartmouth professors, John Kemeny and Thomas Kurtz, in 1964. Now, what they did, what BASIC allowed the user to do, is nothing short of revolutionary. So, previously, computing involved like an insane amount of like expensive mainframe machines, and these are the kinds that fill up rooms, and they, you know, they they have like things that look like film re- reels on a projector. They are slow. They are loud. They get really really hot. Um, the system involves punch card production, which is where the which it would allow the machine to read the, the the computer program it needed several trained operators um, and i'm going to say these were the middlemen because they were mostly men, so where women used to do the computing when the computers became machines, the operators were men, and these uh, middlemen handled the input and output of the process, and there was a huge weight to sort of between inputting the punch cards and putting the program in and the data and, and getting results. So the time-sharing system developed um, that, that basic hinges on. Rode, um, you know, sort of was based on a series of technological breakthroughs that preceded it, but they allowed these processes all of a sudden to happen simultaneously, right? So all of a sudden, the computing process was consolidated in, in, in this unbelievable, like that allowed the hardware and the software to essentially sort of combine and, and become much lighter. Basic was the language designed to allow users to interact with the computing configuration. So this now people could directly communicate with a computer through a terminal with keyboards and, and and teletype printers, right? And these teletype printers eventually would become the display screens, sort of like what you're looking at now if you're you know if you haven't downloaded the podcast if you're listening to it on your laptop. Now it's it's really think, crazy to think about it, but the computers we know now and the way we interact with them with monitors and mice and keyboards, that all hinges on that innovation, on BASIC. So it's two things that happened in the 60s, right? The BASIC, the computer computing language, and the invention of the mouse. Another aspect that really sort of is important is that that language was really easy. It was accessibly teachable, and it was designed and fostered fostered in an environment that was built around teaching, Right? And it was uh, it was built to be taught to a large number of people. This was not designed in, in, in a military environment, it was designed in, a, in an academic environment. And so and this is actually key. the act and culture of computing were were essentially sort of democratic and democratized in an academic environment and that allowed for an exponentially large and growing number of people who could learn it and thereby solve, Issues of computing and explore new ways of integrating into the wider world. So essentially, if you think about sort of open source coding, it requires a language that allows everybody to you know, essentially speak the same language, read the same code. Um, today, the closest equivalent we have to basic is probably Ruby, Ruby on Rails. Um, so the, the Ruby language, uh, because it's a sort of a, an easy to understand deployment framework. And but I kind of like to think that. Ubiquitous computing started fifty years ago. That always, you know, well before I was born. So that's that's pretty cool. So let's talk about, um, you know, we're talking about mice and we've got computing language um, and computers. So what's next? Well, you know, in the nineteen sixties, the internet was born. Yeah, it wasn't Al Gore. The internet was born in the sixties. Now, because of the staggering cost of computing in the sixties, a lot of innovation surrounding it came from government and military funding because. They're the ones that have the big bucks. And the internet is no different. A top-secret part of the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, that stands, I mean, the, the, the acronym is DARPA, began um, developing a new protocol called the Network Control Protocol, and that made its first connection in 1969. On this early internet protocol, which, which essentially is a way of determining how computers function together and talk to each other, that led to the creation of ARPANET, There's some dispute over what exact need the military had for this technology. I can imagine a few. But regardless of why they needed computers to sort of talk to each other, they wanted to do it uh, quickly, and they needed a way for computers to quickly and easily share data between nationwide computers. And obviously, this is eventually going to go well beyond nations. The development that spearheaded um, by at DARPA, most notably, was, um, was a scientist brought over from MIT. His name was Lawrence Roberts. But um, some of the biggest concepts behind how this connection should function were actually developed years before. And one of the most important was a concept called packet switching, which put content-neutral data into these small blocks of data. And those could then be easily transferred. And 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 that essentially, you know, that had been in development for a decade, but that sort of essentially is the building block of how computers talk to each other. Um, now, this, this is the, the groundworks of how computers help us exchange data. You know, essentially, like, when we think about file transfer protocol, the FTP, these things were set up in the 1960s. And that allowed sort of remote desktop connections to be made. Now, ARPANET was eventually replaced by a military-wide internet service in the early 80s. And then the more modern internet protocol, which is the TCP, Transmission Control Protocol, which opened up more possibilities beyond the military. So you and I did not start using the internet until, you know, sort of the mid-80s. Well, you guys probably didn't, but I did. Um, but the, the groundwork for the Internet, like the, the, the groundwork for the Internet that is worldwide and open to all of us, that was laid in the 1960s. And all this technology isn't just going to matter to us in, in our current present, which is the future. Um, but it, it matters right then in the 60s, um, because what this is doing is it's supporting a communications revolution. In decades previous, it would have taken a significant time for, to, for people to find out, well, not just, you know, what computers they were using or what language to use or how to compute better, but essentially to find out about events. I mean, they might, they might have heard it on the radio or they, somebody would call them and tell them, but they wouldn't see it. And in the 60s, televisions are now relatively standard in homes around the world. And that means that not only were people finding out about events happening on the other side of the world, they were seeing them happen. And then imagine the effect. And decades earlier, you would have read about a massacre in Vietnam. And now you could see images of it. TV brought the world into people's living rooms. And and, and parts of the world where literacy was perhaps really high, like where people wouldn't be able to read the newspaper, um, TV bridged that skill gap. And all of a sudden, you, you would have a television, you'd watch a, a soccer match, but you would also see images of what was happening in the rest of the world. And you would watch soccer matches from across the world. And so... When, when human beings see what is happening elsewhere, right, they can connect to people across the globe, even people they don't know. They, they can see the effect of certain policies that their governments are designing on people elsewhere, on people those policies were directed at. And they can then express their support or what was increasingly happening in the U.S. and Europe, the complete lack of support for these policies. They can express a solidarity with humans across the world as opposed to a support for domestic policies. So it's really one thing to support the United States, right, which we all do, perhaps. It's also another to see the U.S. troops in combat. right? So on the one hand, you can support the U.S. and not want U.S. troops to be exposed to the risk that combat in the 60s would put them in. I cannot stress enough what a difference these visuals had on the civil engagement commitment of societies across the Western world. So a large part of what we see during the summer of love in 68, the, in the love and peace movement, has a lot to do with the fact that these images were immediate, that we could see bombings happen almost in real time. There are other things that were shown on television. When Tommy Smith and John Carlos both raised their fist in a show of solidarity with the black power movement in the U.S. at the 1968 Olympics, the whole world saw that. There was no way of hiding that gesture. They had both respectively won the gold and bronze medal um, of the men's 200 meter race, And they were both members of something called the Olympic Project for Human Rights, which was um, set up to protest racial segregation in the U.S. and in South Africa, and in general protest racism in sports. Now, Peter Norman had won silver. He was a white Australian um, runner. And he's the one that suggested Tommy and John share a pair of gloves. So if you look at the photograph, of of, that's an iconic image uh, of of the 1960s, you'll see that, that one of them is wearing the, right, the glove on the right hand and the other one on the left hand. All three of them suffered some kind of ostracization or punishment for being so overtly political in the Olympics. But they were by far not the only ones to be political um, in the Olympics. Um, the 1968 Olympics were in fact rife with politics, especially among also Eastern bloc countries, those that were under Soviet So, for example, the USSR had just recently invaded Czechoslovakia after uh, President Dubček, the Czech uh, president, had um, initiated a series of reforms to grant additional rights to the citizens of Czechoslovakia, which was, in a sense, an act of kind of defiance against the centralized power that the Soviet Union was trying to impose on it. Um, That happened during the Prague Spring, and it was squashed by the Soviet Union. And we, 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 you know, the, the Soviet Union saw that as a sign that Czechoslovakia was becoming more like the West. And in other words, it was in danger of slipping to the U.S. side. So just like the U.S. had done in Guatemala and Iran in the 50s, the USSR was doing in Czechoslovakia in 1968. And just like that, 100 plus people were dead and the Czechoslovak people were back under the thumb of the Soviets. But during the Olympics, each country that was under the wing of the Soviet Union was competing and so when the the Czech winners of certain medals would not look towards the flag of the USSR if they were for example part on the pedestal that was seen also as as a a political act and so you know Tommy Smith and John Carlos were not the or and Peter Norman were by far not the only ones to be accused of being political in a, in, in, in a context that was meant to not be political. But at the same time, I think thinking about them is a really good way of thinking about sort of the increasing tension in the 1960s, right, between a society that is modernizing and advancing in technology and a political environment in which an enormous amount of human frustration or in human pain is being sort of expected from Society in order for these political goals of two nations to come true.